Guys, my new book, How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital, just hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It's ranking extremely high on Kindle and Audible, and I want to thank you guys for grabbing it. If you haven't bought it yet, here's what James Y. said in an Amazon review on March 8th. He said, literally, a step-by-step blueprint for conquering the world and building your own empire. Five stars. It's a verified purchase. He goes on to say, if you like doing things the hard way, don't read this book. For everyone else who appreciates someone showing you what to do and why it works step-by-step so you can rinse and repeat and accomplish the same results, read this book now in all caps. He then says, pro tip, stock up on highlighters while you're adding this to your Amazon cart, you'll be using them. This book should be required reading for every entrepreneur, startup or founder, business person, and human. Seriously, Nathan is not a kind of class that cuts through all the bull crap, he used a different word, to show you what you need to do and how to do it. If success came with an instruction manual, this book would be it. We'll be stocking up and handing these out as Christmas gifts to all my friends and colleagues. If I could give this book a six-star review, I would. From James, James, thank you. All you that listen to the podcast, thank you so much. SaaS founders are loving the book. Go grab an audible version right now at capitalistbook.com. He says the model is the business. The system is the business. Makes a lot of sense. Jay joined first, focused on sales and marketing uh, over a decade ago. Now president of Atlassian. Again, walked us through how they ran turn, uh, how they ran experiments early on on cohorts. You know, blood oaths they had with their product team in terms of moving products to the front of the line. How they thought about acquisitions. Now as a publicly traded company, uh, again, how they think about growth and scaling and all the different metrics there. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Jay Simons. He's responsible for all revenue-generating activities at Atlassian, including customer success and retention, operations, and marketing. He joined in 2008 as vice president of sales and marketing to lead Atlassian's pioneering efforts to develop a high-velocity, low-touch sales model. He's overseen the company's global expansion, introducing of its starter license program, a disruptive approach to premium, where the company donates all proceeds to a charitable cause. It's also growing worldwide customer community and programs. In 2011, Atlassian introduced its cloud-based offering, Atlassian On Demand, and evolution of its fast-growing SaaS platform. He's now president of the company. Jay, are you ready to take us to the top? I'm ready. It's a long All way. Right. <laughs> We're excited. So, oh, I'm sorry. I'm excited to have you on. So, I want to touch on a few things here. You know, you joined first. You've been with them, you know, the company for over a decade. You joined first as in sales. You're now president. I want to pick up actually right at the Trello acquisition. So, you mentioned with these guys, you know, you're running into them, 100 million active users. You both shared the same goal. Why did that deal make a lot of sense for you guys? Uh, a couple reasons. I think, first of all, the, the two companies shared the same mission of, you know, really changing teamwork and unleashing the potential of, of what people are trying to do together at work. And uh, I think had very similar cultures. And then there was like just good product fit in the portfolio. If you think about what Trello is, Trello's, you know, sort of like a digital whiteboard where you can kind of rearrange cards on it. And at one end of, of the opposite spectrum is, is Jira, a product of ours that is very structured. 
um, to manage collaborative project tracking and management. And then the other end of that spectrum is a product of ours called Confluence, which is just a bank, blank page teams can write on. So I think it kind of fits snugly in between, very structured, very unstructured to help people do different things. This was January 2017, right? Uh, yeah, and about a year and a half. So you and your team and your board, you put together the pro forma. You say, here's what I think it's going to look. Here's what the crossover is going to look like. How is it panning out? Is, is the pro forma becoming true? Is it generally working how you expected? Uh, it is. Uh, you know, the integration with, with, uh, with Trello inside of Atlassian thing is, is now, if, if you ask Trello and Atlassian, it just feels like they've always been here, which I think is a, is a, you know, a good signal for an acquisition. In terms of performance, like we've um, exceeded our expectations. You know, we, we uh, signaled to the street what we thought our revenue expectations was and we're in front of that. And uh, it's good. Yeah, things are great. I'm going to force you to, to, to roll the circle over, roll the ball over and show me the dead patch underneath. What, what was one, one surprise, even a little surprise, one surprise you didn't expect after the acquisition, whether it was the integration or the cross-selling or whatever? You know, one was Trello famously was a, was a remote first company and Atlassian wasn't. And Atlassian is a very distributed company. We have offices in, you know, now seven different countries around the world. But being distributed is very different from being remote. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a lot that we had to learn and we were much bigger. There were 100, 100, you know, 100 people when we acquired them a year and a half ago. And we were sort of roughly, I don't know, 1,800, 1,900 probably. And, and so to, to, you know, bring on board a company that has a very remote first culture and is, is used to like, they had pretty hard rules around when you joined a Zoom or when you joined a meeting and there were maybe five people in a room, everybody went to five different places and joined a Zoom from five different locations. And so the people that were outside of the office were on equal footing to the people that were. And that required us to kind of change and recalibrate how we think about um, connecting to people that are remote and people that are in the office. So did you adapt that principle across your 1,800 folks or did you kind of force them to kind of stick in your system? We did. It's a little bit of, of meeting in the middle. Yep. And, and I think like we've learned uh, new habits around embracing and connecting to remote teams. Um, I'll give you another example. Like we have a ritual called um, Ship It, which is basically a quarterly hackathon. You know, Ship It's for us, even though we had people that worked remote, were really an, an office-centric uh, tradition. And, you know, after acquiring Trello, we had remote ship it, like a remote only ship it. We used to do, um, or we, we still do an annual end of year, uh, you know, a little bit of an annual end of year, let your hair down day. And again, that was an office specific thing uh, where people do scavenger hunts and a whole bunch of things. And we plan those now for remote participation where everybody that's remote can participate almost as a kind of a single team. So there's been, I think, a lot of learning on both sides. I want to go in because I think your brain is uniquely positioned to speak about the freemium model. You know, you led sales marketing, you know, this is your model. And a lot of people struggle with the freemium model or they think they have one, but they don't actually because of some, some loops they haven't recognized yet. So I want to talk about in a second. Let's work backwards though. So today, what, what's the last reported run rate you guys are at? Uh, our last uh, quarterly revenue was just shy of $250 million. 250. Okay, good. And that's, that's quarterly. Quarterly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So take me, take me back. I believe it's what 2008 when you're joining in a low touch sales model. I don't think you're, you're doing an inside sales approach with quota and trying to sell big ACV things. You're more like a no touch $20 a month kind of thing. Is that true? And if so, what were you as your first focus coming in that first year? Uh, so when I joined, we were just a little over 20 million in, in annual revenue. And, uh, you know, the model was very oriented around low touch. I mean, it was a little bit higher touch kind of in the beginning. And, and, you know, part of my job was to continue to figure out how to remove friction from the customer path. And so even when I joined, like there was uh, basically a team, we called them product advocates. We still have them today. 
Now, we're a little bit more of a customer success team, but their orientation was if you're trying Elastian's product, we'll tell you, hey, if there's anything that we can do to make this easier for you or answer questions that, that you're not finding the answers to on your own, let us know. We'll bend over backwards. Now, that team did a, did a lot of uh, can I can I schedule a demo? Can I do X? Can I do Y? For like and, a $30 a month kind of account. Yeah, I mean, ASP, I think ASP at the time was probably like 1800 bucks annually. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we re-instrumented that. We thought, man, it's like, it's, it's super high calorie actually to do a demo uh, just for an individual customer, even if they're, they're you know, worth more than 1800 bucks annually. And, you know, we started to do things like, let's record the absolute best demo we could possibly give. And anyone that wants it, we'll just point them online. And again, this is, you know, a little bit more common today, but we tried to figure out how can we automate a lot of this kind of higher, higher calorie, you know, higher, higher intensity, um, you know, human touch and make it really easier for the customer to get that stuff on their own. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the part of the model that we've continued to scale, you know, 10 years later. That's a huge nugget in terms of just taking your, your top salesperson who gives the best demo with the highest conversion rate and just automating it and then removing the, the rest of the folks touch there. I want to, I want to dig in here because the biggest, the, the, what I see a lot of people going from like 20 to 30 to 40 million bucks in ARR where they've got a, you know, a, a monthly ARPU under a hundred bucks a month. They just actually, the CEO gets a dopamine hit right? From doing these demos, it feels really good. So that it's really yeah. difficult to remove it from the process and they just resist, resist, resist. Bes- you know, you just gave one great example doing the recorded demo. Are there, can you point to any other examples you guys did to remove human touch from again, a low ASP sale? RFPs is another one, you know, like we've been selling into the enterprise for a long time and you know, you often get a lot of report, a, a lot of requests for, Hey, help me fill out this you know, this RFP document or this questionnaire that I basically have to provide to my boss to justify the purchase or just the adoption of this particular technology, we would say we don't do that. But we've, we've taken every RFP question that we've ever been asked to submit, and we've compiled basically an answer to all of them. And we'll let you basically copy and paste. You can search for whatever the thing your, your RFP is trying to answer, like what we do with security or what we do with scale or, you know, whatever the question is. The best answer we could possibly give is right there. You can copy and paste it in yourself. Now, listen, early on, some customers actually didn't like that. They were like, well, you're right. your competitors are going to fill this out for me. And we had to have, have kind of the fortitude to say, like, we're, we're basically just not structured to do that at scale. We're trying to win thousands and thousands and thousands of customers. You're important to us. But if you need somebody to fill out a document as part of the process, we might not be the right fit for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be, you know, a deal that a customer wins. Now, like we had a couple of things in our, 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 our favor. Like we had great product at the most affordable price point competitively. And that actually does a lot of work. And so customers, when they look at, man, this is a great product at the best price. Okay. It might be worth me filling out the RFP. If that's a you know, requirement on my side. Yep. Walk me through. So going from 20 million in AR when you joined, um, what, what did you guys get to right before you, you were promoted to president? Do you remember AR around I, that time? I mean, we've, we have, have, pretty consistently as a company grown somewhere between 35 and 50% yeah, yeah, um, right. over the last decade, you know, yeah. really steady, durable growth, but we were never really a triple, triple, double, 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 maybe in the, in the, you know, the first handful of years when you go to, you know, a couple hundred thousand of the first million to yeah. the next million. But then, you know, we quickly stabilized into, you know, a pretty steady flywheel that basically grew in that consistent band of 35 to 50. So let's talk about the flywheel. Um, I would say 
usually I ask really specific questions about CAC payback ARPU. I don't think that's a good use of our time. I think what's a more effective question for you is um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote the book, write 10,000 hours, you're an expert. There's a lot of people arguing the reason an Amazon or Facebook are becoming very monopolistic is because they can run the most tests at one time. So 10,000 yep. tests and win. So what I want to ask you is how did you scale your testing velocity in your marketing channels, you know, at that, you know, 20, 20 million in AR up to hundred million in AR to, to quickly pick winners and losers and then launch new experiments. A lot of work and, <laughs> and, and a lot of effort. I mean, you know, it's sort of easy. Like we started really early on, I think as a company in marketing doing, you know, experimentation and AB testing in sort of all the channels that most of your listeners would just head not around. Um, we were maybe a little bit later stage in adopting uh, and building you know, growth experimentation muscle where in product as a modern SaaS company, you have the ability to, you know, ingest thousands and thousands, thousands of, of either existing or potential users or tire kickers and figure out like, what are the tweaks that we can make in product or in funnel or part of the experience that's going to, you know, increase yield or increase lift from all these people that we're trying to ingest. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, we probably, um, you know, ran headlong into that endeavor about six years ago. You're talking which, like viral coefficient, K1 factor, like invites sent out, that kind of thing? All of that stuff. And then, you know, just in product when we're building a feature and we want to expose that feature to some segment of our customer base to figure out what is the impact of that particular feature. We rearrange the onboarding experience. What's the impact on activation? You know, there's, I, I think a lot of young SaaS companies don't necessarily have the capacity to throw a bunch of energy, you know, and, and, and resource and time at fixing that, especially if they're growing. If you're kind of growing gangbusters and you have a bunch of people that are coming in, you know, like the dial turning to figure out how do we really tune this for kind of maximum yield, that probably doesn't come to later. And so I think we were in that bucket. But then you actually, like we built basically an experimentation framework that was deeply embedded in product. And the first operators of that in product were marketers, mm-hmm. like marketers that were deeply technical where you could say, hey, product has basically built, you know, a set of features and capabilities in the product. We're going to have the, the, the latitude and the ability now with the, the way we built our experimentation framework to kind of tweak them, to say, I'm going to take this feature and sort of expose it in a slightly different way, or I'm going to rearrange the onboarding experience for this particular cohort and then measure what happens, happens next. And by the way, we had an agreement, we had a pact with product where if we, every experiment we would run twice, if we produce the same positive yield twice, uh, we had basically blood pack that said, okay, that gets written that way for everybody. Now, hold on. So I love that rule. Um, what cohort would you, you, you probably said at minimum, it has to be exposed to this kind of cohort, like this volume of users or this many onboards. What was that? So it was a sample size that would be statistically significant. Like it was a big enough sample size. 5% of, of new onboards per month. What was that actually? Do you know? Uh, probably varies by experiment, but I, you know, I would say it was in, it was in, you know, the thousands of users. And so like as a percent, it would be single digit percent. Yeah. Um, Let's shift to, so help me understand when, when you're thinking about going public, what was the month, by the way, in year? Going Uh, public? December, December. I think it was one of the last IPOs of 2015. Yeah. But there's nothing like, there's nothing like the holidays to, you know, be a forcing function on this kind of stuff. So late 2015, I assume because of your role, you were involved obviously aggressively in the going public conversation. There's a lot of people, maybe not back then, but today they're saying there's so much money in the market. We can really IPO, but actually, you know, provide liquidity to early folks, but stay private. Why did you decide that that was not an option for you? And, And really going public was the best. Uh, well, we'd already provided liquidity. So, so, you know, maybe someone unusually for the company, I mean, Atlassian, I think is one of the best bootstrapping success stories of all time. I mean, the first time that we raised 
primary capital was when we went public in 2015, 13 years after founding. Hmm. We, did two, we did two secondary rounds. We did a secondary round in 2010 with Excel, and then we did a secondary round with T. Rowe Price uh, 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 in 2013. And so we sort of like had already basically allowed employees to, you know, to, to participate in liquidity in the company. I think going public was, was really about operating as a best in class company. And we were ready, you know, we, we basically had onboarded an institutional investor in T. Rowe Price to understand what, are, what institutional investor is going to ask us and, you know, how will they operate with us as sort of a shareholder in the company? What are the kinds of things they'll push us on or, or want to understand more deeply? Because they're a representative sample of everybody that we're about to expose ourselves to. And then we operated as if we were a public company for a couple of years. So we were ready. And mm-hmm. then I think, you know, we had, we felt like we have a big market we're still growing into. We've got great durable growth. We've got a business model that I, I think is a huge advantage in terms of how we operate and, and what we're trying to do. And there was little downside. I think mm-hmm. it exposed the company to, to new audiences. And there's a, you know, a rigor and a discipline of operating as a public company that I think on the whole is good. I want to quickly focus on churn as we wrap up the last few minutes here. You know, at this, at the price point that we were talking, right, sub, you know, 100 bucks-ish per month, people would say, let's say SMB space, you know, 9 out of 10 actually go out of business. Churn is really difficult and frustrates the heck out of a lot of founders. Um, what, what, what enabled you to get churn so low, you know, two or three things? And then I want to compare you a bit to Constant Contact, which was much smaller than you today, but they were in the marketing space and they could not figure out churn. And I wonder if the fact that you're in the DevOps space does that fact make you so much more stickier? Well, we're in the team collaboration space. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you look at our products, one thing that makes us sticky is they quickly become systems of record. Like Jira is a system of record for what people need to do and who needs to do it and when it needs to need to be done by. Confluence is a system of record for content that is created as part of sort of like the knowledge corpus of a business or a team. And so it's, it's and it becomes part of your workflow, the way that you create and share something or the way that you create and man- manage a project is sort of in these products. Um, and I would say that, you know, the churn, you know, there's dimensions of churn. Like certainly churn is going to be higher for really small companies and, and small teams. But remember, like we're serving, you know, we talk about serving the Fortune 500,000, which includes really, really, really big companies and really, really small ones. Um, you know, you know we've, we've, like any company, you work on figuring out like cohort by cohort by cohort, what's going to actually improve retention. And it, it could be different things, uh, you know, within different segments of your customer base. You know, one thing that we've shared publicly is, is retention at a local level for companies that spend 50 grand or more with us is 98%. Like it's ridiculous. And that's, that's logo or revenue retention year over year? Revenue retention is going to be north of 100%. But, yeah. you know, logo retention, like the companies that actually use our product from year to year, it's 98% of them that, that basically return if they spend more than 50 grand. And... You know, with our products, you know, we start at a team level. And so we can land inside of a big company at, at a very small unit. But because we're collaboration software, there's, a, there's sort of a, a, you know, a viral effect where one user invites another user, one team invites another team. And the more teams that get invited, the stickier we become, which is part of like what all of our growth momentum or our growth motion is. How do we get people to invite their colleagues? How do we get people to share more? How do we get people to create collaboratively? Because that just is going to increase retention and expansion. Yep. Jay, last, last question before we wrap up with the famous five. Um, you're a public company, you have public markets, you have cash on hand. Obviously, acquisitions are an interesting way to grow. Do you typically have any active acquisition talks going on? Not the companies, but just in general, do you? I mean, I would say if you look at our history, we've done, you know, Trello was the 18th acquisition in, in our 15 years. 
And so, uh, you know, the short answer would be yes. Like, I mean, I think we're, uh, we're, uh, we built, uh, you know, M&A as a muscle really, really early on. I think the third product in maybe 2005, you know, three years into the company's history, the third product that we added to the portfolio was acquired um, on top of two organic products that we built. And so if you look over our history, there's a pretty, pretty regular cadence of basically building, you know, organically and adding inorganic growth and technology into yep. the portfolio. You're talking Bitbucket, Source Tree, HipChat, all these guys. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And uh, a follow-up question on that. You know, your public company, people play arbitrage. I've seen public CEOs do this all the time. It's hard to resist, you know, negotiating a price on a company where you're paying an AR multiple that you know, once it's part of your company, the public markets are going to pay a premium for that AR over what you paid. And it's just pure financial arbitrage. How do you resist the urge to fall for those traps? And then how do you know when to give into that urge? Because, you know, the product is such a strategic fit. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're not just looking to buy revenue. I mean, we're looking in some cases to buy, you know, technology that's additive to our strategy, companies and cultures that are additive to our strategy. And, you know, I mean, like you, you the public markets are going to do what the public markets are going to do. I think we're going to value what we think we can do with, you know, with a product or a company or a technology or a market opportunity and basically value it accordingly. Like the market is going to, you know, inform some of that stuff. What happens in the public market after we gobble something or add something to the company is, is out of our control. Very good. Jay, let's wrap up with the famous five. Number one, what's your favorite business book? Um, man, the most recent favorite business book is Measure What Matters by John Doerr. We're a big consumer and producer of OKRs. And so that was uh, really relevant. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? Preferably an undercover one most people don't know about. Uh, I mean, I would say Ben Thompson of Stratechery might be an odd categorized CEO, but technically he is one. And uh, the guy just basically spouts wisdom. It's one of the only blogs uh, that I read. I totally agree with you. Uh, number two, is there, a, is there a favorite online tool you've got for scaling your business besides one of your own? Uh, I'm, I'm consuming a lot of Redash. Redash? Yeah, Redash. What is that? It's you know, data visualization, data reporting. Ah, interesting. And, and so it's just, you know, we're, we, we look at a lot of data here. Number four, how many hours of sleep are you getting every night? Six. And what's your situation? Married, single kiddos? Married two girls, 13 and 10. Oh, wow. Well, you got a full house. And how old are you, Jay? 45. Last question. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? Uh, that that, that uh, the, model, the model is the business. Guys, uh, I don't think we could have ended on a better note coming from a guy that really says we want to focus on system of record companies. He says the model is the business. The system is the business. Makes a lot of sense. Jay joined first, focused on sales and marketing uh, over a decade ago. Now president of Atlassian. Again, walked us through how they ran turn, uh, how they ran experiments early on on cohorts, you know, blood oaths they had with their product team in terms of moving products to the front of the line, how they thought about acquisitions. Now as a publicly traded company, uh, again, how they think about growth and scaling and all the different metrics they're checking out. 